0: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org.
1: You know, I think at CAA, we like to think of ourselves on the very best day, doing our very best work, we can prevent wars. Um, or we can prevent negative outcomes. And if because we can give policymakers the the heads up in advance to be able to take actions early enough that they can prevent
0: worse outcomes. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. As the invasion of Ukraine unfolds, we want to provide timely insights from the experts. So we've launched a series of special unedited episodes separate from our normal content. Today, I'm joined by David Chastine, a former CIA officer on the Covert Action staff. While at the agency, David conducted overseas operations, guided human intelligence collection, evaluated foreign threats to computer systems, and provided analysis on cyber issues to the president. David was also a consultant for the Amazon Prime series, Jack Ryan, starring John Krasinski, and the show is heavily influenced by David's experiences. I brought David on today to talk about intelligence collection and cyber warfare as it relates to the war in Ukraine. David, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thanks, Ken. It's nice to be nice to be. Uh,
1: spending some time with you again.
0: I, I got to tell you guest prep, uh, background research for agency types is, uh, is, is not easy. We've had a couple on the show, uh, and you guys cover your tracks. Well, uh, I, I'm sure that's cause you know, things we don't.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it is one of those things I think, um, paranoia is funny. I, I for a little while I, I worked with some internet freedom fighter types after I left, um, the agency and it was interesting, you know, there was a lot of paranoia. And the thing, the thing that you learn is that um, paranoia is a function of ignorance, you know. Um, they're like, oh, we think somebody flipped our house or somebody's reading my email. And when you're an intelligence officer, you pretty much assume people are reading your email and, and you have a general sense of who they are and why they're doing it. And um, so I think you just get used to a level of, of surveillance that just uh, comes, with the, comes with the territory.
0: What are you doing now? I know your career has been, uh, you know, has run the gamut, and and it obviously started in uniform, but you've done some pretty interesting things since. Give us the rundown.
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, after I left the military, um, uh, did finance for a little bit and was undercover at CIA for a while, and did those things you, you talked about. Um, and then came out to San Francisco, uh, worked on a mayoral campaign out here and um, then ended up running cybersecurity ops for the city and was um, chief information security officer or CISO for the police department um, and then for GoFundMe, um, com, which is a, a great website doing great work. Um, and after I left GoFundMe, I'm, I'm CEO at, a, at, a, at Cypherlock, which is a um, micro segmentation encryption software company, cybersecurity company. And I'm also a partner at uh, Side Channel Security, which is um, a
0: cybersecurity consulting firm, fractional CISO firm. I want to tap that experience for this, this conversation on the digital battlefield in Ukraine. I mean, we are just seeing image after unforgettable image of the devastation being wrought upon Ukrainian cities by the mass of the, the Russian army. But there's an invisible war going on at the same time that I think is being very underreported. Uh, and it, while it does not have the same kinetic impact, it can have devastating effects on on life in in a modern city. Can you talk about the, the digital battlefield writ large, and then we'll, we'll dive deep into some of the aspects of it. Yeah. I think, I think ever since, ever since
1: Stuxnet, um, there's been a general sense, I think it's started to come out to the public a little bit that, um, foreign governments have really added cyber warfare, um, as a tool of statecraft. And, uh, we in the business kind of differentiate cyber warfare from cyber intelligence as, you know, um, and cyber intelligence is when you're stealing people's secrets. That's what intelligence officers do is they, they find out things you're not supposed to know. Cyber warfare is when you reach out and break things, um, things that actually have impact in, in, the, in the physical world. Um, and you saw that in Iran w- with the attacks on their nuclear um their, their nuclear processing capability and, and that's the stuxnet reference that's stuxnet. You. that's right that's right um and then you you've seen it quite a bit in um in Ukraine over the last number of years as the um presumably the the russians have um basically tested out their capability to take out power grids um, using that kind of uh, is either called a SCADA attack. Um, SCADA is a, a, a the, the new term is kind of operational technology or OT. But uh, SCADA is the computer systems that control things in the physical world: the train switches, power grids, uh, traffic lights, water supply systems, and
0: um, things along those lines. You're not just talking about shutting things down inside. Okay. Another country. There are ways to impact infrastructure that have—I don't even know what the term is for it—but the equivalent of you know a kinetic impact. Things don't just stop working. Things can blow up. Can you give us a sense of the severity that these attacks can reach?
1: Yeah, there was some. There was a lot of press about um, uh, some tests that were done uh, at some of the national laboratories here in the U.S., where essentially what you can do is you can take a transformer. and you can do the equivalent of imagine it, imagine flooring it in your car, just rubbing up the full throttle, throwing it into drive and then keeping it floored and throwing it immediately back into reverse and then drive reverse, drive reverse back and back and forth. After a while, you're just going to destroy the transmission of the car. Um, it is possible. It's been demonstrated possible to do that essentially to the power grid, to transformers, where if you it's not just a function of shutting it off, it's you're actually destroying that piece of equipment. And if you are savvy about which parts of the grids are the most vulnerable, the most difficult to replace, it's theoretically possible to take out a power grid in the region for, for months or, or longer, uh, as it takes them time to just complete, literally you have to rebuild the grid.
0: Now, in the US, and, and maybe you are not at liberty to speak to this, so mm-hmm. if not, just, just map this onto Russia. Who is leading? these attacks i know at the unit level there you know every every larger command has a cyber officer sure. but th- this is much more organized and focused than that there are there are parts of the government dedicated now to offensive cyber warfare how is that structured and and will that i, I want you to help Give us a sense of what a priority this has become uh, in in the the prosecution of a campaign like we're seeing in in the Ukraine. Sure. Are you talking about
1: uh, American offensive capabilities or other countries' offensive capabilities? Well, let's talk Russia?
0: about American to the extent you can speak to that, um, sure. and then um, into in, it for us what that might look like in Russia. Sure. Sure.
1: Well, what I would say is that. It, it's probably safe to assume it, when I say that, you know, it's become clear to all nation states that this kind of cyber warfare is a tool of statecraft. Um, you should assume that the United States has, has done that math as well, right? Um, and, and I think there's really kind of two ways to think about, there's, there's three things at play here, right? The first in is gonna be the intelligence piece. You've got the CIA who's responsible for human intelligence and all source analysis. Um, And then you have the NSA who's responsible for signals intelligence overall. And then, of course, each of then you have DIA, which is defense intelligence that's focused on stealing secrets that can help warfighters win wars specifically. And that would be like, what's the new Russian tank or stealth plane look like? That's more of a DIA mission than a CIA mission. Um, And then, of course, each of the the uniformed services have their own intelligence capability to support warfighters on the ground. So, first in, if it's someone's job to break into the kind of computer system that would do something like that, it's going to be NSA, because it's their job to get into computer systems where they're not supposed to be. Um, And NSA falls under DOD authority, and there's a lot of uniform folks walking around NSA. Um, So the job then is to steal stuff. Um, The other more visible steal information. The more visible piece, of course, when the government, when the US government uses force in the pursuit of national security policy, um, it's usually the military, it's DOD, and uh, one of the differentiators we use between DOD and intelligence capabilities is we say Title 10 or Title 50, and Title 10 is a reference to the part of the US code that kind of establishes and, and runs the military. Title 50 does that for the intelligence community. Um, the, the thing that we, we think about with the military is that you, it's best to think of the military as diplomacy by other means, right? It is a public act. Using the military is a public act. Um, it's designed to sway opinions. It's designed to change people's minds and it's it's designed to be seen. That's why militaries wear uniforms. It is, it is an inherently public act. You want people to understand that it's being done under the auspices of the United States government. Sometimes you'll want to do things that never get found out. And at that point, you're talking about covert action. um, And that's title 50. Um, There's only a couple of declassified covert action instances ever. And this is generally when the president of the United States says, um, I want the CIA has sole authority to do this uh, in practice. I want you to go out and do this thing, which is never going to be found out. Um, And so if we're talking about something where it is an intentional diplomatic act against another country, we want them to know that we did it. That is more likely to be carried out under Title Ten authorities because that's under the military because that is a thing that is designed to be seen and designed to be public. So, um, when you think about those those things and those capabilities, there's going to be that military aspect of an offensive cyber warfare capability, um, and that's probably what would be used in a Russia scenario and likely in response to. Frankly, everyone's very surprised at this point that the the Russians haven't already launched a pretty serious cyber attack on NATO or the United States. Um, There hasn't been anything substantial so far. And I think we're kind of waiting for that to happen. Um, And when that happens, the trick when you're in a conflict with a nuclear power is you don't want to escalate. It's always very challenging to find out what is a, a proportional response. And of course, the most proportional response to a cyber attack would be another cyber attack of the same kind back on the country that did it to you. Um, if you have to move into like a physical attack or something else, then, then, then you, you start to run into accidental uh, escalation, which nobody wants. So I think we're probably, but what, what, but it, what, what you need to know about these kinds of attacks is You can't just decide, I remember one time I visited a general early on Air Force Cyber Command. He's like, we're looking for a future where we have a hack button and we can push the button and it says hack. And it's like, oh, bless your heart. It doesn't work like that. You know, this stuff takes years of work in advance to put in the tools necessary to have the effect that you want to have um, when the time comes. So it's safe to assume that work has already been done so that when the president of the United States says we want to respond in kind, we're, we're able to do that
0: what do you make of the the lack of a massive offensive cyber attack from russia is it really just about their concern over escalation or is there a, a capability um question
1: well the thing to remember the thing to remember about a cyber attack is you kind of get to do it once right um the The most damaging thing that happened, you know, and this is all just based. I, I know this entirely based on just reading the newspaper, like everyone else. But uh, the shadow brokers leak, where I think the I think the the assumption is, or the 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 assessment is, it was likely the Russians who did this, but were able to steal a big chunk of the NSA toolkit from contractors and leak it publicly. It was massively damaging because those toolkits are very difficult to build, and these are the the vulnerabilities that you know exist in other computer programs. Um, that other people rely on for day-to-day work. Um, Once you make it known that those vulnerabilities exist, Microsoft, these other companies, they patch those vulnerabilities and they don't work anymore. So if the Russians launch a massive SCADA attack in the United States, it'll probably only take us a matter of days to just like patch that thing and then we're not vulnerable to that anymore. So it's a one-time use kind of scenario. It's not like a nuke where you can just keep launching nukes all day long. You get to do that one time and then you can't do that same trick. And these tricks are very hard to come up with.
0: Are there ways to fire warning shots in that same uh, in in that same theater of of conflict, if you will? I'm I'm thinking about what appeared to be a takedown of USAA, the the banking site for military members uh, recently. Um, You know, maybe I'm reading too much into that. But are there ways to um, to flex? without launching that cyber nuke. Yeah,
1: the trick, the problem is we we're talking about kind of like a distributed denial of service attack or a DDoS attack. Those are so common and like any group of, any group of, you know, you can rent that capability on the dark web. It's it, it's not special to a nation state. Okay. It's not easily attributable to a nation state. And so even if they DDoSed, I don't know, like the IRS or something like that, it, it would one, it's temporary, two, we know how to deal with it. It's not, that's not something that's gonna be taken seriously. This is, this is the thing is you can't really fire a warning shot with something like a SCADA attack because let's say, all right, we're going to take out the water system or the power grid in like Muncie, Indiana, like some small place where it's like, that's not that big of a deal. It's my hometown, by the way. But like, say you go somewhere small. Well, the problem is military, intelligence, law enforcement are going to swoop in on that area, find out how they did it. And once they find out that vulnerability, they'll just patch the entire power grid over the next week or so. And then the attack doesn't work. So that's why it's difficult to like fire a warning shot in that scenario because you're really giving up the goods you know when you do it the first time
0: one of the things that struck me in the weeks and days leading up to the to the Russian invasion was the flood of authorized disclosures that were coming out yeah. Yeah. betraying our what seemed like total visibility into the Russian game plan. You have to have mixed feelings about that kind of thing. Having been on the inside, having been one of the um, suppliers at great risk to yourself and your your colleagues of that kind of info, how does your community feel about using your products for public persuasion?
1: You know, I've I've been out of CIA since 2014, so I I can't speak directly to, to like the feel inside the building. I've had conversations with friends. What I will say is that the the you know it feels like the general consensus is this is a, a win and it's nice to have a win, you know. Um, there is always this balance, you know, when it comes to sources and methods. You know, it's it's a running joke with CIA. You're know, talking about sources and methods, but I was a, I was a collection management officer at CIA, and and you know one of the ways to think about CIA is um, <laughs> the CIA is basically like a really kind of bad newspaper. Um, We run at a massive loss for a tiny readership who doesn't read 99% of what we write. But every now and then we get it like a big story that gets it right. And that's what keeps us in business. You know, Um, the director of operations, you have case officers who are essentially reporters. They have sources like reporters. They are given assignments by collection management officers who are best thought of as editors. And those uh, case officers go out, collect stories, write those stories in a journalistic format. And then the collection manager officers like myself publish those stories and go to our customers and say, is this answering the mail for you? Is this useful to you? But, you know, I think at CAA, we like to think of ourselves on the very best day doing our very best work. We can prevent wars um, or we can prevent negative outcomes. And if because we can give policymakers the, the heads up in advance to be able to take actions early enough that they can prevent worse outcomes. And this is such a glowing example of a win on that front. It's hard to feel too bad about it. I, I do know, I was never a Russia guy. Um, Russia house is famously very closely guarded with its assets for obvious reasons, um, You know, given the capability of the Russian intelligence services and the alter shames and other kinds of penetrations that, that the CIA has historically had uh, from you know big adversaries like the Russians that they're very hesitant to, to let the good stuff out because you recognize that every time you let that out to public, you put those sources at great risk uh, and their families. But the point of it is to have an impact, is is, to, is for it to win. And I, I think, you know, from what I've heard and seen in press reporting, and from what I've heard from books it, it does seem like Ultimately, the folks at CA were able to sit down with policymakers and say, okay, let's try this. Let's try to find a way that we can publicize this information widely, but still redact enough that we can protect the sources that gave this information to us in the first place. And that's a very hard thing to do. But if you get it right, if you get that balance right, you can have a massive impact. And that's definitely what happened here.
0: I think the impact most people are writing about is the impact on, uh, on the public and and the impact on removing from Putin any any excuse for a pretense. We knew that they were staging uh, not just military gear, but they were preparing a false flag operation. We let all of this out into the public domain. What is the impact, though, on the Russian intelligence services, uh, on the on the adversary when something like that happens? Like for you, what would it have been like to have your principal geopolitical adversary tell you that they knew your business
1: in advance? Yeah, I think, you know. It's interesting, I we talk a lot about in the strategic space you know third generation warfare is diplomacy by other means fourth generation warfare has really become public relations by other means you know the the point of warfare has always been to change minds right it's not even by the time of third generation warfare and, and sorry i should probably for folks who are not ken and i are both military guys so we're familiar with these terms but you know first generation warfare um is uh, I think kind of uh, pre pre trench warfare. It's guys lining up and taking turns shooting at each other, like during the American revolution, second generation warfare is generally kind of trench style warfare. World war I. Third generation warfare is combined arms, fast maneuver, um, you know, air support, world war two style warfare. Um, and fourth generation warfare is generally what people think of as insurgencies and sort of especially um, media savvy insurgencies. And when you're, in that third generation warfare space, the job of the allies in World War II was to convince the Germans to surrender. You needed to change their minds so that they believe what we believed, which is that it is time to give up and stop doing what you're doing. Fourth generation warfare is very much about convincing the fence sitters, that that is the, the big chunk of public opinion that is available on the global stage about who's the good guy in this scenario convincing enough of those people that, that you're right, that we're the good guys and the Russians are the bad guys, the Ukrainians are the good guys, the Russians are the bad guys, that they support, uh, they throw their support, they come off the fence, and they throw their support behind the Ukrainians um, in this case. Um, and um, that ability for folks to get out and, and shape the narrative in advance is really the thing that ultimately wins this kind of conflict.
0: One of the biggest challenges we'll face in that regard is penetrating the the new firewalls that Putin has thrown up inside his countries to to getting the truth. What are your What are your predictions on our ability to do that? Are the Russians willing and um, innovative enough to to get it themselves? Because they, you know, with VPNs and other things, you can do it, but it's it's risky and it's hard. It is. It's risky. It's hard. It's,
1: I mean, of course, you know, Voice of America has been doing this uh, since the cold war, you
0: know, shortwave
1: transmissions. And, you know, we've always had a mission to try and get real news, Western narrative news anyway, into countries where it is trying to be blocked by an autocratic regime. There's experience with this, you know? Um, And I think um, the trick of course is, you know, Russia. The internet is always going to be porous. There's always going to be ways around the firewall. It's just a question of what are the consequences for coming around the firewall in that way. It's really been um, very inspiring to see how many Russians are willing to risk immediately going to jail uh, in order to protest. You know, the the courage and bravery of the Russian people needs to be marked in this way. I think for sure, and they'll continue to try and get the news in that way too. It's going to be possible. I think the the danger of of an autocrat, um, especially one who's savvy like Putin, is I think in our, in the last few election cycles, we've seen the real danger of telling people what they want to hear. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of the Russian people like what Putin is saying, and they have for a long time, they want to hear that version. You know, I think there's a lot of folks in in, in Russia who think that Putin has made Russia great again, you know, which is very much um, the, the narrative that he's been been spinning for a long time. So there's always going to be dissidents. There's always going to be people who are savvy enough to look for for other narratives and, and try to find more objective sources of news. And, and those folks will be, you know, um uh, informed. But there's also a lot of people who have family in Ukraine who are talking to those family members in Ukraine who are like, they're showing us right now, and they don't, and they don't believe it you know, because uh, they don't want to believe it. They want to believe that the the Russians are the good guys and that Ukraine is controlled by Nazis and it's World War II all over again and Russia's the good guys again and uh, on the global stage. And uh, some people are going to continue to believe that. At least they'll believe it until the consequences of the sanctions start to really massively hit the, the
0: Russian economy, which is already happening. Well, the consequences of the sanctions and young Russians not coming home. I mean, it is really hard to pierce that that narrative until uh, the body bags or lack of body bags, since most of them are being thrown in mass graves or cremated um, before before they get there, uh, until the reality of war uh, sets in. Um, But that that might take some time. I don't know if you saw this clip from just the other day of Putin addressing a massive stadium with tens of thousands of cheering Russians and Russian flags about, you know, the 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 glory of greater Russia and the nobility of this invasion and the bravery of the the Russians defending Russia and liberating Ukraine. I mean, the brainwashing was on full display. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that stuff is hard, you know. I think Um, the reality of course is, um, it's just, it's very, no one wants to think they're the bad guys, you know? And I think there's definitely some people that the more you challenge them on the consequences of the things they've done that are wrong, the more they want to double down. You know, there's this, there's this thing called backfire effect, you know, where unfortunately we've learned that debunking doesn't work. You know, when you try to Challenge people with the facts uh, that challenge their pre-existing closely held positions. They don't actually change their minds. they 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 dig in deeper. and for some for some critical portion of the Russian people, that will probably continue to be the case. But I think you you have to hope that the the number of people who are persuadable and the number of people who are dissidents, um and also, frankly, look, Russia's not a democracy, right? Um, not not really. Um, Putin's popular, but it's it's not a real democratic system. It, it is an oligarchy, and I think people have been throwing that term around a little too loosely, but the reality is that uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Putin led the dismantling and the sale of the Russian state to people who were former intelligence officers, former military officers, who then literally just stole big chunks of the Russian economy, um, and Putin has done a very good job of coordinating those folks in order to retain in power Um, The reason why the administration has targeted the oligarchs is they're the actual seat of power in the country. And if enough of them can be convinced that this is not beneficial to them, um, then that might actually bring some change.
0: I was going to ask you that, um, and you brought it up in euphemistic terms. Mm -hmm. The CIA has a pretty mixed record when it comes to targeted assassinations. I would say a pretty appalling record when it comes to... Targeted assassinations, but what you're what you're really talking about is a, a regime change in Russia led by those who may calculate they have more to lose by Putin remaining in power than than by him continuing to prosecute this this war in Ukraine. Is there anything the U.S. can uh, can do or shouldn't do to? Um, to facilitate an outcome like that?
1: What I would say is, um, you know, there's uh last, well, one, to be, to be clear, I left CIA in 2014. So I'm not privy to any sort of uh, covert action that would be, you know, aimed in that direction or anything covert action wise aimed at Ukraine or Russia and obviously wouldn't talk about it if I did know about it. There is, um, there is. I believe still in power and I'd have to check on this, but I believe under uh, executive order one, two, triple three, there is still a prohibition on um, assassinations of, of, you know, heads of state, like what we're talking about there um, or actions that would um, lead to their death. Right. Um, so, and I never, when I was at CIA, I never saw anyone try to violate that um, when I was there. Um, it's not to say that didn't happen. I didn't know about it, but I, I never saw anyone try to break the law in that way when I was at CIA. Um, but what I, what I would say is that when it comes to strategic messaging, when it comes to like trying to shape the narrative, right, all you can do is try to influence the people who are in power to make changes. Um, and I think it's overestimating the capability of the American, um, intelligence capability to to do something like that, even if we wanted to, you know, Putin, an autocrat like Putin has probably survived multiple coup attempts. Within just through the normal course of business, you know, just by being who he is, you know, so much of when you have an autocrat like that, the purpose of the state is to preserve the regime. And I think it's hard for us as Americans to think about that, you know. We have a purpose of the government that's enshrined in the Constitution, and the government mostly operates pretty much the same way, regardless of who gets elected president or who gets elected to Congress, even when those people have wildly differing opinions about how the government should work. And we saw how much that was true when the Trump to Biden transition. Um, autocracies are not built like that. you know. A democracy is a pyramid that is... is is. Um, it's a regular pyramid where the person at the top is held up by a massive infrastructure that mostly operates the same, whether the top gets locked off or not. An autocracy is built like an inverted pyramid. It's built in such a way that everyone who's in a position of real power owes that power and that position to the person who's at the who's in charge of that autocracy in such a way that if they're removed the entire pyramid collapses and and if you're an autocrat and you haven't set that up correctly you don't last very long someone else comes along and, and does it better so um putin's very dug in it'd be very surprising if something like that happens without a lot of people changing their minds about whether or not supporting him is in their best interests overnight it's a, that's a it's a hard one that's a challenging thing to do and um And if someone came to me as, you know, the executive officer of the covert action staff and said, hey, let's, what do you think about trying to do this? That's what I would explain to them. But um, I think you can change minds over time. You know, clearly the Russian government has changed um, drastically in our lifetimes. It can do it again. And nobody lives forever. Like at some point, Putin will die of natural causes. There will be a transition. It's just a question of when and what it looks like.
2: I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.
3: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On conflicted,
0: As a human collection officer at CIA, did you have a hand in in developing or analyzing psych profiles of key figures? Um, I you know obviously the CIA, uh, the analytical
1: you know DI is the director of intelligence, and they have analysts, and I'm sure those folks. Um, I've heard I've heard like you you know open press reporting about. Um, the use of psychological profiles of, of senior leadership. Um, but I, I don't know anything
0: specific about that, about that background and how it works. Um, I, we had our last guest uh, was, someone who worked side-by-side side with Putin in St. Petersburg when he was deputy mayor uh, for wow. for uh, for a while and was in the room with him for key meetings and just provided some fascinating insight into the vastness of that man's ambition. Um, and honestly, I mean, we haven't released this episode yet, but he, he did not see what was coming. Uh, but, you know, looking back, he, he, yeah. he sees signs of it. I want you to take us inside... Ukraine from the perspective of a covert action officer and the importance of intelligence for the warfighter for those territorial defense forces for the regular Ukrainian army I mean day to day they're they're just running and gunning but um, sure. intelligence is is foundational to their ability to succeed Um sure. uh, yeah explain for us well
1: again there's a there's a key difference i i spent the first half of my career doing foreign intelligence and i spent the later half of my career doing covert action they're they're different things funded with different dollars and and kept very separate uh, for very intentional purposes the uh, intelligence is, is when the cia reports the news and covert action is when the cia tries tries to actually make the news um, and uh, on the, by, by changing world events, you know, in that way. Um, and so the, where it comes to the intelligence piece, you know, I think the overall, uh, and again, I, I'm not writing on any of this stuff. I've been out since 14, but in general, one of the most valuable things we do to support our allies is provide both strategic and, um, to share strategic and tactical intelligence. And that's not just CIA. It's actually a lot of the more useful stuff is coming from the other members of the intelligence community, like the military focused folks who um, are specifically charged with helping American warfighters win. Those folks can help our allies win as well, and the folks that we're trying to support. Um and that kind of intelligence is just, the normal stuff you would expect you know a military intelligence uh, foundation to do it's troop movements and like where are people where and what's their what are their capabilities and and all that stuff that you're going to do your best to try and prepare them with with that sort of thing the covert action piece is is different and and covert action is um again it's something that's not designed to ever be public i think one of the things that's interesting about you know, how much support that the, and really honestly, one of the ways in which Putin really screwed up, in my opinion, is by taking the Donbass and taking the Crimea and then waiting a couple of years to take the rest of the country. He both created time for Ukrainian nationalism to build in a way that it had not in a long time, and also created time for NATO and its allies to provide training and, equi- train and equip to the Ukrainian military. You can't just airdrop a bunch of surface air missiles and anti-tank missiles you know, into a conflict and expect them to have an impact. You, it takes time to train those, to train the trainers, train the soldiers how to use those, those weapons. And over the last couple of years, that's been done very publicly, not, not by CIA, but by the military, the NATO, NATO forces, um, which is a huge part of the reason why things have gone as well as they have for the Ukrainians under this circumstance. Covert action is when you do that secretly. The secret part is, is usually, um, you know, there's there's three broad categories of covert action. There's um, there's train and equip, which is one of the big ones. There's um, strategic messaging, and then there's disruption, which is where you you know kill people and break things. Those are the three broad categories the CIA has ever done under those under those authorities. And this is all this is all public knowledge. This is just part of the the doctrine of how this is done in the U.S. code um, and strategy. But the train and equip piece is mostly when we're teaching other militaries to do what we do. And so when CIA intelligence services do that, it's the same thing on the Intel piece. So that's training intelligence officers how to do intelligence and training special forces um, forces how to do um, their jobs well using kind of modern Western techniques and modern Western technology. And you saw that on the overt side in Iraq and Afghanistan, Ken. Um, and you should, you know, generally speaking, if we're working with an ally, it's uh, if someone we support and it makes sense, then most presidents are probably going to look at trying to provide that capability to the intelligence and special forces of the folks we're trying to support as
0: well. How quickly can that ramp up? I mean, I know we have been supporting the Ukrainians in that respect mm-hmm. since at least 2014, probably before. Yeah. Uh, but obviously there's there's a need for a surge now. Yeah. Have you seen that happen? Well, I, I wouldn't know about it if, if it had. Not in this yeah. case, but in your experience. In the past.
1: Uh, yeah, well, Yeah, I think... I think what happens is, you know, obviously there's some things you can do quickly, you know, it's like if people need like, look, if you just need basic logistics, right, like beans and bullets and stuff like that, you know, all armies and all, all folks are ready to take those kinds of things. Um, when it comes to using more advanced capabilities like the anti-aircraft missiles or the anti-tank missiles, you know, it takes time. You got you to gotta train the trainer and, and get that capability out there. And when it comes to training people how to do human collection and how to do, you know, um, special operations and insurgency tactics and stuff like that, that all takes it takes a while. takes It takes a long while. In. And also it's about building relationships and building trust with people um, um, so that they trust that uh, what you're teaching them is even worthwhile and, and worth using. And that stuff takes time. But, but again, weirdly, you know, Putin did us a favor by giving kind of like a multi-year heads up notice that this was coming. So um, yeah, I'm assuming, I would assume that that a lot of that work has already been underway.
0: What do you make of these reports of multiple foiled assassination attempts against president Zelensky, especially, and this might be uh, just, <laughs> trolling the FSB, but these, these reports that the Russian internal security service is actually tipping off the, uh, the Ukrainians that these attacks are coming.
1: That's fascinating. I and mean, that's the first I've heard of that, but, but, but I do know, I mean, it's, it's obvious at this point that the Russians are very fond of assassination and assassinations of people that they don't like, or that are inconvenient for the Russian regime. Um, that's certainly consistent with what we've seen so far. Um, I will say, you know, it's interesting talking to folks about this. It's like, I don't think people understand, you know, Ukrainians have family members in Russia and Russians have family members in Ukraine. You know, like this is a very, I'm trying to tell people, it's like, this is like invading Canada. You know what I mean? Like if you show up for an exercise and it's like, we're going to invade Saskatchewan. And we're like, what? Why? You know, they're like, it's controlled by Nazis. And it's like, I don't think that's right. <laughs> you know, like it would be really upsetting for us to like go in and shoot people who have our accents and kind of look like us and, and looks like just an extension of the United States culturally, you know, that's kind of what's going on in Ukraine. And so when you're having, asking your troops to do things and when you're asking intelligence officers to do things that they find morally questionable, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a real, there's kind of competing schools of thought about why you get defects, defections and why you get, um, spies from other countries who volunteer to come work for you or, or, um, uh, provide you with intelligence, you know, some people are like, oh, they do it for the money. But I, I think a lot of times the best sources that you get are, are people who think that they're on the wrong side of history and they want to have a positive impact and they realize, oh, this thing that we're about to do is a bad thing and I don't want to be a part of it. And I would rather actually try and stop it. So if you've got SVR officers, you know, and another, you know, FSB officers who uh, are are aware of these things and they're like, you know what, we're not the good guys in this situation. And I actually don't support that. It's not that hard for an intelligence officer to pick up the phone and drop a line to a NATO intelligence service and just, you know, let them know what's coming.
0: I'm uh Maybe attributing too much uh, here, but as a, a collections officer, you were managing assets with those kinds of motivations that that you had to understand, right?
1: Well, it would be a little more accurate to say that I was I was managing the efforts of case officers who were managing Got assets. It. I was I was more like the editor at the newspaper <laughs> rather than a reporter <laughs> at the newspaper.
0: Got it. Yeah, you served in the military as did I, and. When you're in uniform, there's a definite mind shift between the the wartime military and the peacetime military. When the balloon goes mm. up, yeah. uh, there's a change in, in the way you think about your job. Does that exist at CIA as well? Is there a wartime CIA and a peacetime CIA?
1: Mm, not in my experience. I mean, the reality, of course, is that I joined CIA in 06. So, like, we were at war. Yeah. And we were at war the whole time we were there. I think what happens is CIA is often operating in war zones or other places that are critical where there's some kind of emergency going on all the time, you know? And so there is, I think different offices at CIA are at war sometimes and are not at other times, you know? So like, if your region is like, Oh, like, this is real, you know Um, if your region's really blowing up, then yeah, there's that general sense of like, Okay. If you're on the Syria desk, you know, when the, when the Syrian revolution kicks off, suddenly it's like, oh yeah, there is that same kind of focus, you know, where it's like, oh, suddenly what we do is really important. And um, you get, you get money, you get resources, you get attention. Suddenly like your, your boss is off to the white house to brief the president, you know? So there is that kind of energy and focus for sure. Um, when you're, when you're in one of those offices and, and the balloon goes up, as you
0: say. You said a while back that it's nice to have a win every once in a while. Yeah, I got to believe that's that's one of the toughest things about that line of work. And in the military, your wins are often public, uh, and your failures are often covered up. Um, in in the CIA, the wins are intentionally um, not publicized. How does that affect the morale and the psyche of uh, of folks at the CIA when, you know, the often, I mean, years can go by and the only news coming out of Langley is scandal because you can't talk about the wins.
1: Yeah. That's, it can be hard. I will tell you, you know, early in my career, what's interesting is when you're junior and when you're in an area that is maybe not as hot as another area. And, and that was kind of me early in my career, you can kind of look at what you're doing and be like, this isn't that important. I don't feel like it's worth it. What are we doing here? We kind of maybe we're not very good at this, you know. What happens is in your career as you move around, you move to different offices. And as, you, as get off the executive officer on the covert action staff, I suddenly was read right into a lot of stuff, like a lot of really big stuff. And what you find is that what you ultimately learn is that um and hopefully through your career, you have enough places where you realize, oh, we're actually doing a lot of good here. This is really positive work. This is totally, we're absolutely earning our keep. This is great. Um, hopefully you have enough of those things where you understand that your impact is actually quite high. Um, we're a very good value for the American taxpayer for how little human costs. So we, we we have a very big impact for for the dollar compared to like a satellite system, you know, or what NSA does. Um and as you get more senior you're, you you get right into more and you see more and you, you get a little bit more of behind the scenes in terms of the overall national security process with the rest of our partners, you know, State Department, military, um, the White House, Congress, that whole thing. I will say that um, as, I, as I progressed in my career, I, I, I started to realize that both intelligence and covert action are a lot like the rest of kind of American domestic and foreign policy. There's a solid third of it. That's probably pretty dumb. <laughs> like We probably shouldn't be doing this, but uh, there's either the political reasons why we got to try um, or you never know, you know, uh, where something might pay off. Then that kind of moves into the second category, which is a solid third of stuff where it's like, I don't know if this is good yet, but it's probably a pretty good investment. And in the future when we might be really glad we made this investment, I had a friend who was an analyst on, she was an analyst on like um Farm, you know, or like agriculture in like X region, and it was like this, or the economy and agriculture in this particular region, and it was one of those things where she did this job for years, and um, as she's dating a friend of mine, and, and like it was completely unimportant. And then one day, the right headline came, and she's briefing the president of the United States, and it's like, oh, we're really glad we have that person who has that expertise in that thing. You know, um, there's a, a, another solid third of stuff where it's like, this is an investment in the future; it might be super important. We got to make sure we're smart about this thing. And then there's a last third of stuff where it's just like a home run, where you're like, this is great policy. This is absolutely worth every penny. If the Americans knew we were doing this, they would be so proud of us. And like Greenpeace would sign off on this. It's such a good idea and like absolutely the right thing to do ethically, you know. So yeah, obviously, when you you get more of the latter category ones, hopefully over your career, um, and those things are really satisfying and they feel really good.
0: A lot of the investment in that second, third you described, uh, the the impact of it does depend, though, on having a president and a, a an executive branch that is willing yeah. to listen and, yeah, right. and willing to execute in good faith, effectively, not manipulate the intelligence. I mean, you are you have a customer; you don't get to make decisions really. That's right. That's right. On
1: both sides, on both covert action and the. And the uh, intelligence side—it's—it's it's one of the reasons why the relationship between the director of the CIA and the president of the United States is so critical. It, we're useless if the president doesn't believe us, doesn't trust us, um, and um, you know that is something that is is tricky. You know, and it's one of the reasons why the CIA—it's so important that the CIA remain nonpartisan, remain apolitical, much like the military, for the same reason. You know, under our constitution, if you're going to have that pyramid where the top can swap out and the pyramid still works and is stable, you know, you can't have a Republican president who thinks that there's a Democrat CIA or a Democrat military or a Democrat term, you know chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You gotta you gotta be nonpartisan, and that's something that is I you know um, I'm proud to say the CIA takes extremely seriously because they know the stakes, they understand the stakes, and you spend that much time in the White House, you get it. It's like, we've got to still be taken seriously by the next person in here, regardless of their politics. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and the CIA is a funny place, you know, it's um, it's actually very politically diverse. I, I knew a lot of Republicans and Democrats at CIA, um, but nobody's dumb, you know, like that's one of the special things about CIA is you're never the smartest guy in the room. There's always some some uh, 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 guy or gal who's who's way smarter than you. Um, and that's one of the special things about working there, but um, yeah people take that people take that very seriously the the nonpartisan aspect of it.
0: Last question we have an upcoming interview a couple days with someone on the front lines in in, uh, in one of the besieged Ukrainian cities. He's part of the territorial defense forces. What would you say to that person about um, about America's uh, role in this conflict, about uh, our ability to help or, or not help, are there any any thoughts you'd want to share? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, one of the things I one of the things I
1: really like about where we are right now, and you know, look, I have a number of colleagues. Um, I have a number of colleagues actually on the special forces side, mostly military vets, friends of mine who are on their way right now to go help in person, mostly on their way to Poland you know, to help in person um, and really proud of those guys. And, and I totally get it. And I think there's some of the, some of the the expressions that those folks are telling me um, is, you know, I didn't feel great morally about what we did in Iraq. Uh, it was complicated, what we did in Afghanistan. It just, it wasn't clean. It wasn't clear cut that we were the good guys, you know, when we were doing a lot of what we were doing there. And this is not like that. The Ukrainians are the good guys, and the Russians are the bad guys. And I want to help. You know, I don't like bullies. and it's pretty clear who who the bullies are in this case. and and those folks are on their way. And I think that um my friends at the State Department and CIA and the military who have been able to help in any way, have been extremely proud that they've been able to to play a part in supporting the the Ukrainians who've just been so courageous in all of this. and so are obviously, on the right side of history. Um, and, um, I've, I haven't seen in my lifetime, the American people and like Republicans too, you know, friends of mine who are, who are Republican. It, it, this is, it's, this is one of the, it's the first time in a long time I've seen Americans on both sides of the aisle agree on what we should be doing, you know? Um, so there's definitely this, the American people support the Ukrainian people all across the board. I, I just saw a Twitter video today of, a. Uh, you know, uh, presidents Clinton and Bush uh, visiting a Ukrainian church here in the United States to express their support for the Ukrainian people. And, um, I think we're going to do everything we can. It's, it's tricky, you know, you know, because obviously it doesn't help the Ukrainians to start a nuclear conflict. Ukrainians do not win in a nuclear conflict. And so there's this, this trick of, um, nobody wants a, a nuclear armed NATO and a nuclear armed Russia shooting at each other. That is a bad plan and that doesn't help the Ukrainians. Um, so that's the trick is how do we, how do we give them the support they need to defend themselves um, and to defend their sovereignty while not, uh, you know, triggering a nuclear conflict, uh, which is bad for everybody. So it's nuanced, like a lot of this stuff, it's complicated, especially when you're, you know, working in the intelligence and national security space. Um, but I think, it's clear the American people support the Ukrainian people and we'll do everything we can, uh, that doesn't cause a disaster to, uh, to make sure they win.
0: Well, thanks David. I agree. Um, been great having you. Let's, uh, let's, let's do it again. I love it. Thanks Ken. And great, great to catch up with you a little bit. It's been too long. Likewise. Thanks again to David for joining me. You can find him on Twitter at David Chestine. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. Vote Vets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Roloffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
2: The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So, five minute news is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.
0: This podcast was
3: produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.